Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, I have Eric Peters as my guest. If you don't know Eric already, he is the libertarian car guy. His website is ericpetersautos.com. You can get there by just typing in epautos.com. But let me just tell you, Eric is a lot more than a guy who reviews cars and, and writes about cars. He's probably one of the best libertarian political commentary guys that I know. I, I read his website all the time and just delighted to have him on. Eric, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. I'm kind of like the big chief from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Remember that? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm, I escaped the reservation in the nut house. <laughs> well, that's a funny um, thing to say because when people hear EP Autos, they probably hear, oh, it's a website for gearheads. And that's great. I wish I was uh, more of a gearhead. I'm kind of an ignoramus when it comes to fixing cars, although I can change my own brakes, you know, and that that took longer than it should have to teach me. But, you know, you're such a great writer. And that's really what kept me coming back to your site and especially some of your stuff about things not related specifically to automobiles. What's your educational background? Well, uh, it's unintentional. Uh, as it happened when I was a kid, my parents had me in a good, high-quality private school in Connecticut. And then my dad, who was a doctor, uh, moved us to the Northern Virginia area. And I got to experience the Fairfax County uh, public school system, and that was quite eye-opening. Um, and it was kind of my first, to use the modern term, red-pilling experience, because I had this juxtaposition of uh, what it was like to be in a school where they actually taught you how to think as opposed to what to think in the government school system, which was oriented toward the least common denominator and was fundamentally all about instilling reflexive submission to authority. Um, one of my favorite comedians, George Carlin, who I wish were still around, um, put it succinctly when he said that the object of the whole enterprise is to create obedient workers. Have you ever seen his or listened to his rant about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I had that experience. And from there, I coasted. It was a wonderful time to be uh, in school. I'm a Gen X guy. 
Uh, and I coasted on my gentleman's B into George Mason University, got my BA there, and then went into straight journalism as a, you know, as a reporter. I've always been a car guy. I've been passionate about cars as long as I can remember and machinery. And I started to write about that on the side. And one thing led to another. And I kind of began doing that full time, but not just cars, because it's very difficult to write about just cars in isolation, because cars and politics and philosophy are really intertwined and more and more so with each passing day because of the government's constant micromanaging of how cars are made, how we're allowed to use them, and how it is undermining what used to be our freedom to pick the kind of car that suited our needs and our wants, and also to be able to just jump in your car anytime you feel like it and go for a drive wherever you want it without somebody monitoring or monetizing you. And I want to get to your latest article called Heading East. But before we do that, I just want to talk a little about, you know, your previous writing on both the disappearance of the sedan and, you know, the fact that most people assume that if you buy a car, even a used car now, you're going to be taking an extended loan. That isn't the free market at work, is it? There's a lot about the government that caused that, right? Yeah, there are all these folded in costs that many people are unaware of. And unfortunately, a lot of people cheer them without realizing that they're paying for them. And I'll give you a specific example. You'll hear politicians talk about some proposal or law or regulation that they want to see enacted that is going to uh, uh, require that all new cars will average 50 miles per gallon by such and such a year. And gee, you're going to save so much money on gas. Uh, they, don't, they don't point out the little asterisks that's on top of that statement where uh, you might want to look into, well, what's it going to cost to engineer a vehicle? that is going to get 50 miles per gallon, particularly when the government has already decreed that the thing has got to have six airbags, has got to pass this, this gauntlet of crash tests that require the car to be extremely heavy. And weight, of course, is the enemy of fuel economy. The heavier you make the car, the bigger an engine it's going to need to move and the more fuel it's going to use. So what you end up with is this crazy situation that we've got right now with these incredibly expensive vehicles that aren't particularly fuel efficient. You know, it's, it's an irony. If you look back in the past, you can probably remember there it was routine for cars to get 40 miles per gallon back in the early 80s. That's, you know, long before the advent of things like direct fuel injection, nine-speed transmissions, variable cams, uh, variable displacement, hybrids, all of that. And the reason that they could do that was because they were substantially lighter. I'm talking about on average, about 800 pounds lighter than the cars of today. If you were to remove all the weight from these modern cars, you wouldn't have to have all this technology. And it would be a very simple matter to have pretty decent sized cars that easily got 40 miles per gallon and economy cars that got 60 or better. And as far as the whole situation with electric vehicles, you've written quite a bit about that. What do you think about hybrids for people who really are concerned? And I'm not totally convinced that uh, increased carbon emissions are the entire reason why, you know, the weather behaves the way it does. I don't know for sure that it's, you know, it doesn't have something to do with it, but why do they hate the hybrids? They hate them because they work and therein lies the rub and actually therein begs a question. If indeed you're truly concerned about carbon emissions and saving the planet and all of that, you'd think you'd want to advocate for and encourage people to buy hybrids, right? And the reason I say that is because hybrids, unlike electric cars, are cars people can actually afford to buy. You can wax rhapsodic all day long about the virtues of electric cars and how neat they are and how ludicrously fast they are. Problem is, at least expensive, at least expensive, expensive of them, excuse me, too much coffee, um, are in the low $30,000 range, okay? 
So that is too expensive for most people to buy. So no matter how much you might want something, if you can't afford it, it, it's kind of irrelevant. I'd like to have a Cirrus Vision jet, and I think it would be great to have my own personal jet. I'd like to be able to just jump in it and fly wherever I'd like to go. Problem is, I haven't got $2.1 million to buy a Cirrus Vision jet, so I don't have one. And it's the same issue with these electric cars. Now, the Teslas, the least expensive Teslas, are $50,000. I think that's approximately what the average family income is in this country. And it's simply, the math doesn't pencil out, it doesn't work. You know, it, they're just too expensive, whereas hybrids only cost slightly more than the otherwise equivalent non-hybrid version of the same thing. Like you can pick up a, something like a Prius for about $25,000. And now, thanks to the Biden thing, as I like to put them, uh, with gas prices being what they are, that does pencil out. You know, if you're saying you're going to pay, let's say, $2,500 more for a hybrid relative to something that's essentially similar but not a hybrid, it doesn't take that long to, to eat back or to get back that additional $2,500 that you spent on the hybrid. So I'm all for them. And I think it's interesting that these people who are pushing electric cars are trying to push the hybrid off the stage. Well, it's funny because these are the same people who lecture us about, you know, our behavior and burning too many fossil fuels. Of course, they all fly to their conference seminars in private jets. And whether it's conscious or not, I mean, the trend that you're talking about with vehicles is going to result in the very richest people having their own car and all the rest of us not being able to afford anything. And then we have to use public transportation and only go where the government wants us to go. Ah, so you noticed that, huh? Yeah, that is the, the thread, the common theme here. Took me a long while to, to grasp it, but uh, it makes sense when you finally do grasp it, that the object here is not electrification, that's the facade. The, the objective is to winnow down um, the, the personally owned vehicle and personal mobility. It is intended to sort of nudge, to use the term that Cass Sunstein likes to use, people into these, these centralized controlled methods of transportation. Even the car makers are beginning to use that verbiage. You'll hear them talk about uh, rather than selling cars in the future, they're going to be selling transportation as a service. So, you know, instead of owning a car that's under your control, what you'll do, assuming you're a good little boy or girl and have a high social credit score, you'll tap your phone, uh, your app, and that will summon your automated electric car, which will then take you to uh, wherever you supposedly, well, wherever you'd like to go, but under its control, under its conditions, and you'll just kind of, as I like to put it, meat sack there, which I find incredibly depressing. You know, it's like we're being we're being ensurfed and we're being infantilized. We're, all all of the 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 initiative and the capacity to act on our own judgment is being systematically taken away from us. And that goes for just about everything. I mean, when you talk about COVID, you're not allowed to take medicines that the uh, government doesn't like, even if they work and, you know, their vaccine is shaky. This is what it is. They, they don't understand any alternatives besides what is mandated and what is prohibited. There just is nothing of the, as you said, the classical liberal or libertarian. And really, those are the same things, just at different stages of development. Uh, thinking left in in society and too few people because of the the school system are even curious about it. Yeah, the 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 commonality here is about control, them controlling us. 
Um, you've probably heard that statement that the WEF issued about how in the future you'll own nothing and be happy. And I find this fascinating because so few people will ask, okay, if we own nothing, then who owns everything? Oh, yeah. Somebody's going to own it. Right. Exactly. You know, the problem with all these collectives is that somebody's got to run the collective. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's fatuous to talk about the people. Okay. There are no people. There are only individuals, you know, and if you've got a group of people who are supposedly in a collective, well, at some point, somebody's going to have to be as, as George Bush used to style himself, the decider. You know, I'd far prefer that each of us be free to be our own individual decider for ourselves uh, rather than be enthralled to the decrees of deciders like these politicians and these other people who somehow think they've got they're possessed of superior wisdom uh, and that they have the right to, to order us about and tell us what to do. And, and our job is just to, just to comply. Yeah, I mean, I've often said, if you believe that Stalin lived in a uh, in a two-room apartment with uh, another family sharing the space, then I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. And that kind of leads into your latest article called Headed East. And I'm going to put the caveat out there. I know I'm going to get 1,400 comments with some reference to Godwin's Law because it refers to a certain German elected leader. <laughs> but... There is a time to talk about the Nazis, and this happens to be one of them. He didn't campaign on concentration camps and mass executions, did he? No, he did not. He campaigned, as these people tend to do, uh, on saving Germany from a dangerous threat. And very interestingly, he cast that threat in epidemiological terms as a health threat. They literally referred to Jewish people, for example, as a bacillus that was poisoning the German bulk, the German people. And uh, they even resorted to such things as showing movies to the population, where on the one hand, you'd see a group of Jewish people, and then they they pan over to a sewer, and you'd see a horde of rats, you know, running into the sewer. And they'd say, you know, these, these things are are spreading disease and filth, and uh, we're going to clean it up. And it was horrifically effective in pathologizing a group of people and worse, making the average German feel that it was a good thing, a virtuous thing to be in favor of disinfecting the country against this threat. And I think if people don't see the parallels, the echoes from history of today, I think it's because they just don't want to face up to the horrible fact that this is a parallel. This is happening. And if we don't face up to it, I think it's entirely possible we could end up experiencing what those people experienced 70 years ago. And unfortunately, at the time, the Jewish people in particular were used to pogroms. I mean, they've been kicked out of other places. And you talk in the article about, you know, some of them even packed their clothes. You know, they might not have been happy about it, but they did certainly didn't see or anticipate how horrible what was at the other end of that train might be. And right now, you know, nobody is saying that we're going to be executed or even taken to a camp, at least in the United States. They are doing it in Australia. No one seems to be too concerned about that. And that's kind of the theme, isn't it, of your article is that it, it always starts, number one, as an appeal to public safety, and number two, nowhere near the way it ends up. Sure, it's incremental. You can't take a, uh, a largely sane reasonable country and, and have a guy say, everybody's going to be vaccinated or else tomorrow. You have to do this in steps. First, you terrify the people. 
you, 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 you posit this threat, you, you subject them to constant anxiety. You know, you make them wear masks, which degrades them and also degrades everybody else. You know, you look around and it's kind of, it's oogie and creepy to see all these people wearing masks everywhere you go. You lock people out of their businesses. You tell people that they can't shop, they can't work. And, you know, you just keep kicking this stuff up and then you point the finger. It's those people who are to blame. They're the ones who are responsible for all of this. Hint, hint, what are we going to do about this? And so now we're at this point where you're seeing the right term, I think, is the ghettoizing of a whole class of people in this country. Those people who've said, you know, wait a minute, I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to have myself injected with a vaccine that was developed at, and to use the Trump word warp speed. You know, I looked into this a little bit. And in the past, it took at least five years to develop a vaccine. And then it took another five years to uh, double blind and and and, uh, and and placebo test these things to find out, okay, let's see what happens. Because there is no way to determine whether a vaccine is safe without long-term testing. It's just not done. So now we have that. And we also have the fact that we know it's inarguable that these vaccines are harming, are harming people. And a good number of people, in fact, my understanding is that the number of people who've been seriously harmed by this vaccine is greater than the number of people who were harmed by any vaccine and all vaccines in total over the last 30 or 40 years. It's, it's very, very, very sketchy. And to say, you know what, I, I'm, a, I'm not in this high risk group. I, I'd rather not assume the risk of being shot up with this. And these people now are being pathologized and, and created and turned into a kind of pariah class. And it's okay to cast these people as bad people, as dangerous people. And where does it end? As you, as you alluded to earlier, in some countries, Austria and Australia, they are literally putting people into camps. That's the, the correct word, camps and prisons. And if you're willing to do that to people, what else are you willing to do to people? Okay, everyone, let's take a quick break for this important message. It's that time of the year again when we're all looking for something special to give friends and loved ones for the holidays. Unfortunately, the government and its bank have worked especially hard this year at doing what they do best, make things more expensive for the rest of us. Well, I have great news. You can get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas. That's my gift to you in appreciation for listening. But that's not all. I've also made the book available as a paperback at an incredibly low price, so you can get a few copies to give as gifts. It makes a great stocking stuffer. And don't worry, this is not some preachy libertarian treatise. It's full of fun and even includes a special Christmas beverage recipe. Get more information and your free ebook at antistatechristmas.com. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand. Something no politician understands. Just leave it up to supply and demand. And, follow the and they're not doing that here yet. And really, it's just a matter of what they think they can get away with. I mean, if you go on to Twitter is kind of a <laughs> there's varying opinions on, you know, how valuable it is as information. But one thing it does tell you, if you go to some of these bureaucrats and public figures, you can see how they think with what they tweet out there. And believe me, if they're allowed to act on what they believe is the right thing, and we're all in a lot of trouble. And 
that brings me to another thing that you brought up back in, in Nazi Germany while all this was going on with the Jews. They even had their own Dr. Fauci. Uh, they had several, actually, a number of them. The extermination program in Germany did not begin with gassing people. It began with jabbing people. And it was done by hospitals, in hospitals, by doctors. I think it was called Action T4. And uh, they characterized the people who were uh, executed um, with, with poison that was injected into their bodies as life unworthy of life. And what they meant by that were old people, handicapped people, people who had uh, develop, developmental problems, and also people that they styled asocials, which meant people who didn't comply with whatever the regime had decreed. And they began doing that and seeing what the public reaction to it was. And for the most part, the public acquiesced. There were a number of notable exceptions. There was a, the Bishop of Munster, a guy named von Galen, who gave public sermons uh, in opposition to it. And more famously, there was Martin Niemöller who came out and talked about it. But by and large, most people accepted it because most people are so desperate to not stand out and to be part of whatever they perceive to be uh, the, the right point of view as expressed by these centralized apparatuses that, that decree it. And so they just kind of bowed their head and hoped that they wouldn't be involved and it's not my problem. And you know, it's happening to those people over there. And that is how you end up with what happened in Germany at the end of the day, because it just kept getting kicked up and kicked up. And the roster of people who it was deemed okay to simply dispose of um, expanded to the point of including you know, literally millions of people, whole classes of people, not just a, four, uh, a few poor souls who were uh, executed within the, the context of a hospital. And you make one more great point that I wanted to just emphasize, and that is that it's not like there weren't parallels to the Great Barrington Declaration and RFK Jr. and, and others back then, uh, or others now, I mean, back then there were people speaking out and the state pretty much treated them the same way our state treats dissidents today. Yeah, there's a virulent shouting down of these people today. Uh, I've not met RFK Jr. And uh, interestingly, this is just interesting to me. He's kind of on the left. He's an old school liberal. And of course, I'm a libertarian. So we, you know, we have very divergent views on a number of things. But I admire and respect the guy because I think he's honest and I think he's a man of good faith. I think he's trying to do the right thing. And he's been a brilliant and wonderful advocate on this issue. But he's been characterized as some kind of uh, reckless, irresponsible, dangerous person that has to be marginalized and shunted off. And that's been true of a number of other people who've simply tried to uh, ask reasonable questions. Like, for example, what is this mania to inject every child in this country with this vaccine? When we know for a fact, it's not arguable, it's the very science we're supposed to follow, that children, people uh, in that age group, 25 and under, stand essentially nil risk from, from any kind of serious harm from this sickness. So why, what is the, what is the medical reason? For, for jabbing all these kids. There's, it just doesn't parse, and it's a legitimate question. And if you dare to raise your hand and ask that question, somehow uh, you're, you're some kind of evil person. It, it really ought to give us pause and make us think about what are the motives of the people who are ascribing evil motives to us while they are pushing this very evil thing. The other thing that I can't help thinking of, and it's, it's off the topic of the Nazis, but not that far off, is what happened in the Soviet Union with science 
there was a whole period called Lysenkoism or a school of thought or trend following the sci- the so-called scientist Lysenko, where science just became completely undermined. There, there was no more science. They believed all sorts of nutty things because science had become politicized. And it just seems like the same thing here. I remember that when this pandemic first started, the first thing out of Fauci's mouth was that most people are not going to be benefited from wearing masks. And I know he's got a story about that now that he was doing a noble lie because he knew we were short of them. But you go back and watch the clip of him back then. And he's almost condescending about it. Like, I don't think most people should be wearing a mask. That's very telling. I think, you know, he knew that these masks aren't going to do anything in a a respiratory virus pandemic. I'm wondering what turned him around if if higher powers came to him and said, look, you're not on the program, dude. We're going to have them all wearing masks. I don't know. But it's just curious that when it first started, he was actually saying things that were scientifically verifiable, and then he just about faced. Well, uh, you know, my, my response to that is uh, he's admitted that he's lied. So would you trust somebody that you know has lied to you in the past? I will, I, you know, if, if, I, if I know somebody's dishonest, well, I pretty much am not going to leave my wallet on the table if they happen to be around. There's that. And then there's also the disingenuousness that suffuses all of this. And I talk about this mask stuff all the time. If we really were addressing this from the point of view of public health, then there would have been some kind of standards for these masks. You know, instead of literally an old bandana, literally, uh, if you wanted to use your wife's panties, you know, to to put it that way, you could literally put a diaper over your face and that (laughs) qualified as a mask. It did. You know, you were allowed to go into a store. You were allowed to do whatever you you needed to do, just so long as you put something over your face. It didn't matter whether it served any medically useful purpose, and it didn't matter how you handled it. You know, my dad was a doctor, so I grew up around those people, and I grew up around hospitals. And in the surgical suites, the doctors didn't put on their mask. They had a nurse put on the mask, and they didn't wear it all day, and they certainly didn't stuff it in their pockets and then take it out and put it back on. And then here we are today, you know, people just throw the things on the ground. Supposedly, this is biologically hazardous material. Yeah, sure, just drop it on the ground like a used condom, and nobody seems to notice the commonality or the problem with that. It's, it's, it's ritual. It's kabuki. And as far as Fauci goes, this man has done nothing but incite panic and fear. He is, he is the embodiment of the kind of person who screams fire in a crowded theater, and he knows he's doing it, too. It's despicable. He's an awful person. And so are the other people who are fomenting this mass hysteria rather than giving people context and saying, OK, you know, there, there's something going on out there. But for the most part, unless you fall into these certain high risk categories, you really don't have that much to worry about. And by the way, should you get it, there are a number of effective treatments that don't come with horrific side effects that can be used to help you in the event that you do get sick. They've never explained to people that there is a medical difference between a case and a death. And that's something I picked up on very early, again, because I grew up around doctors. It used to be understood that when you use that term, a case, it meant somebody who was under the treatment of a doctor who was in serious peril for some reason. Not just that you tested positive on some sketchy test somewhere and had no symptoms and were fine, but they used that to sort of conflate in the mind of the public this idea that we've got all these cases and hint, hint, implicit in that, all these people are going to die. Remember when they were, you know, essentially making it seem like we were going to start seeing bodies stacking up like cordwood uh, by the side of the road. And of course, that never happened. And it's not happening now. And even to this day, despite the fact that we know pretty much everything we need to know about this, this, this sickness, 
they're still grinding that fear organ, trying to keep people terrified in order to keep them submissive. Yeah, one of the things that I often talk about, maybe I'm just getting grouchy in my old age, because certainly the blame goes towards the Fauci's, the government, the elite billionaires who uh, use the government as their personal vehicle. But what about the people? I'm disappointed in the way people have complied with this. And the part about it that really is striking to me is the amnesia. Now, I remember, and it was not that long ago, I think I'll post a, a link to this, you know, in 2018 or 17, I think it was 18, everybody was screaming about the flu and they were putting up tents outside hospitals in New Jersey and around the New York area. And when this thing started, all of a sudden it was, oh my God, tense. Well, it's like, well, don't you just remember a couple of years ago, they were doing the same thing. The other one that I remember is that I think it was around the same time, the discovery was made that viruses were up in the atmosphere, like 30,000 feet up. They were finding them on the top of mountains. And the implication from that, of course, is do what you may, um, take whatever precautions you think are going to do anything, but really you can't escape some of these viruses because they're just falling down on cities and towns all over the world from 30,000 feet up. Now, has anyone checked the top of Mount Everest or wherever for a, uh, these respiratory viruses or even the top of, uh, you know, a lower mountain? I don't think so. No one's taught. Everyone seems to have forgotten about all of that. I mean, does it strike you, the amnesia, and do we need to put some blame on the common folk as well? Well, it's part of this new abnormal where somehow it is considered unnatural that people get sick and unnatural that 90-year-old people who have cancer die. You know, we get, we get sick. It used to be before this weaponized hypochondria, as I put it, uh, spread. Uh, every year, you knew somebody who caught a cold or caught a flu bug or whatever. And, you know, they, they would complain about how they felt terrible for a few days. Maybe they stayed home from work. Maybe they stayed in bed and then they got better. And that was normal. Now, people have been whipped up into such a degree of hysteria that it's it, it's cause for a freak out. I was with my girlfriend at Lowe's a couple of months ago. We're standing there in line and somebody sneezed and you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, everybody in there froze and they looked, you know, because somebody sneezed. That's how, that, that's how bad it's gotten. And the way these, these, you know, the, it's, it's exacerbated by the reporting of things like, Oh, Colin Powell died a couple of weeks ago of COVID or with COVID or however they phrased it. But the implication was that this man, who well, I forgot exactly how old he was, but he was quite elderly. He was in his eighties and he had colon cancer, I think, or skin cancer, not in good shape. He died. You know, I mean, I'm not by any means attempting to minimize or trivialize the death of people in their 80s. But you know what? We die. And we tend to die when we get old. And there's nothing particularly abnormal. If you had a, you know, 85-year-old grandpa and you got a phone call, well, you know, grandpa had a stroke, grandpa died, you'd be sad, but you wouldn't regard that as some kind of like exceptional, unnatural event that occurred. What is exceptional and unnatural is hearing about 17-year-old healthy kids who have developed heart inflammation after being jabbed and athletes who are falling dead or, or passing out in the middle of a game, you know, young, healthy athletes, that is something that should cause people to say, well, wait a minute, that's unusual. That's abnormal. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my father passed away in 2019 and I'm sure if it was three months later, he would have been uh, considered a, 
a COVID death. But, you know, in the end, something gets us all. It's not like there's one day where we just drop over. I mean, you know, yeah, the human body is designed <laughs> for planned obsolescence, but you're talking 120, 130 years if you never encounter anything and live in a bubble. But, you know, in our 80s, our 90s at the most, some people make it a little farther. Something like pneumonia is going to get you. And we don't close all of society because there's a pneumonia epidemic when some older people pass away because of it. So that's a great point. What else do you want people to find on your website, epautos.com? Oh, gosh. Well, I try to be eclectic and, and, and have a, a spectrum. Um, I, I, I get to test drive new cars, so you'll find new car reviews there. Uh, you'll also find uh, a lot of articles about classic cars, old cars, maintenance, repair, motorcycles, and then a bunch of, of philosophical uh, uh, things uh, about the kinds of things that you and I are talking about right now. Practically anything goes on the site. And I've got a really wonderful group of people on the site who comment and who often uh, enlighten me about things that I'd never thought of before, who are uh, in some cases very articulate people. And if you like my articles, I encourage you to check out the comments because the comments I think are sometimes as good or better than whatever I come up with. I'm going to let the listeners go and find some of your articles on clovers by themselves, but I'll, uh, <laughs> that was one of my favorites. The first one you did about them, because I was living at Florida at the time. And, and the one thing that's better about New York than Florida is the driving, but I'll leave that to the listeners to go find. There's just a ton on this site, everybody, and some of the best writing and really the political commentary zone, not just libertarian. So Hey, Eric, I'd talk to you all day if I could, and I hope you'll come back. But thanks very much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Tom. I enjoyed it. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. Don't forget to get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas, at antistatechristmas.com. Of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you normally listen. And please do go to the Tom Mullen Talks Freedom website at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and leave a review. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.